What's that you can hear in the background is a mashup of Doctor Who themes followed by something a little bit more playful. Do you recognise it? If not, stay tuned and we'll explain more. You're listening to the Power of Three podcast, in which a group of Doctor Who fans who tend not to be able to count come together on a regular basis to magnify, mangle, mediate, misjudge and machinate, that's machinate, you rude people, as we discuss our favourite time-travelling hero in all forms of his adventures, whether on television, audio, comic strips, animations, novels, or magazines. The letter M's important today, even though neither myself or my co-conspirator today have that letter as either our first or surnames. Mine begins with K. K is for kill, according to the New Avengers, but in this case, we'll just go with Kenny. And with me is my lovely, kind, respectful, and thoughtful pal, Dr. John Bolin. Hello, Doctor. Good evening, or good night, yes. whichever you prefer. <laughs> well, it depends when everybody's listening, but when we're recording, it's definitely night time. Indeed. <sighs> so, John, how are you? You've had a bit of uh, international travel since last we spoke. Yes, I was uh, I was in Rome for a week, which was lovely. It's the first time in years that I've had a chance to have an October week, uh, and that was great. Rome was wonderful. Weather was superb. I had a slightly unexpectedly extended trip because of the uh, inability on my part to get the uh, passenger locator form paperwork done. <laughs> so I had a bonus night in Fumicino. But apart from that, it was uh, it was wonderful. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm glad you're back as well. I'm sure you're not, so but <laughs> I'm sure you'd rather be in Bella Roma, but uh, I don't speak Italian apart from... Uh... No, that was pretty much it. Uh, so there we go. Even though I used to have an Italian pen pal, Chiara Agodi, who I'm still in touch with actually on Facebook now, which is quite nice. So, And we've been pen pals since school, so that's a good 30 odd years. Who'd have thunk? Anyway, today's Power of Three podcast is brought to you by the letter M. Later on, we'll be heading off into the realms of Big Finish, as I've spoken with three of the creatives behind the Missy spin-off series. But before we get there, John and I are going to have a chat about the Master's first female incarnation. John, when Missy first appeared at the end of Deep Breath, did you have any idea who she was? Honestly, no. I genuinely didn't. Uh, it didn't occur to me at that point. There was a kind of a dawning realisation as the, as the season wore on that this might be what was happening, but no, the, 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 when she appeared as this kind of enigmatic voice talking to the, the half-faced man at the end, I just, yeah, I just didn't know what to think. So I don't know if that was because I managed to remain spoiler-free. I don't know if there were uh, rumours circulating about her, but no, I was genuinely in the dark as to who this, this figure was. Yeah, I mean, she was absolutely madness personified, absolutely brilliantly by Michelle Gomez. I have to say, I actually did know, as a friend who worked in a national paper told me, and they didn't actually run the story because the BBC asked them not to, and they got another exclusive instead, which was really quite nice. So yeah, I was I was spoiled by mistake, but I still absolutely enjoyed the complete madness of Missy building up throughout the season. But of course, there were those rumours that she was the Rani and stuff like that, and she's yeah. talking about the Doctor being her boyfriend. But the thing that I particularly liked Michelle Gomez, perfectly cast. She's got that slightly dark, slightly evil look to her. I mean, I think it's, she's like Roger Delgado has a sort of Mediterranean heritage. I think her dad's Portuguese or something like that, but she just yeah. looks the part, doesn't she? Uh, yeah, I thought it was an East Kilbride thing, to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, that's where she's from, is it, is it not? Is she not, is she not an East Kilbride girl originally? I thought she or was Glasgow. 
could be wrong. I, I thought I was maybe, just going to Maybe I've just made that up. I could have made that up. Um, but let's just go with it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Michelle Gomez is, is a, a brilliantly funny actress. And I just, yeah, she was just perfect from, from the word go. Uh, you could believe that she was the master. And it was a quite a clever thing to do. Obviously, if it was the BBC's long game to, to regenerate the Doctor into a into a female, then then why not give this a try uh, with someone that we'd we'd known in a variety of incarnations as a as a as a, as a male master figure. So um, no pun intended. I think her <laughs> her portrayal has been has been masterful from the very beginning. Uh, she's just such a funny actress, and she gets that comedy. I think perfectly and i think she's made the master a much more or, or missy um a much more interesting character you know i think i think the master is potentially a more interesting character than the doctor anyway because you know the various shades of wickedness and madness that we find in the in the figure of the master invites exploration it invites a, a backstory which i think has been quite richly mined in a variety of of of, of media and spin-offs but really where Missy comes into her own is is that comic timing as well, you know? I just think she's she's deliciously funny. And that's what really sets off her her menace. I mean it's 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 easy to be, you know, the 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 evilly chuckling or maniacally cackling villain, um, but to be funny and then within a heart's beat, as she would say, to kill someone off. I think really accentuates the menace of the figure. So it's not just about laughs, but it's about a really refreshing take on the wickedness of the master. Absolutely agree. I think that by casting Michelle Gomez, they made sure that what was a fairly controversial idea absolutely worked and everybody absolutely loved Michelle Gomez. They picked the perfect actress to play the part, somebody who's got a lot of creative input, you can imagine, and from what we'll hear later on from the interviews, from the writers who've written scripts for her for Big Finish, she brings a lot herself to the part, and all of a sudden dialogue that might have just been written as a straightforward line will suddenly be read out in a Lithuanian accent for absolutely no reason whatsoever, but because it's Michelle Gomez, she's bonkers, and it absolutely works. And I think that they definitely cast the right person. And I think there's also that lovely frisson with Peter Capaldi, also being Glaswegian. So we've got that sort of slightly grumpy Scottish Glaswegian man and this completely bonkers Glaswegian woman up against each other from different sides. And it's wonderful that dynamic to have. And just what you were saying earlier about Missy being so murderous, where she kills off Osgood. It's absolutely, there's no need for her to kill Osgood, but because that's what the master does. The master just kills randomly because he feels like it, or she feels like it in this case. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's that's where the character develops throughout Capaldi's era during the Twelfth Doctor's incarnation, right through to the to the final, the final beat almost of of, of her of her screen time of that kind of canonical story that we see on I mean there's all sorts of stuff that's been done around it. But yeah, uh, the, the the fact that that she even kills herself. <laughs> stabs stabs herself himself uh, in the back. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's it's again that's a very worthy Moffat 
exercise in bafflement um, that I'm still not entirely sure what's happened there. But yeah, the character, although it, it has this this veneer of kind of Mary Poppins charm, doesn't doesn't lose any of the menace. I don't think. In fact, I think it becomes genuinely more menacing um, than you know some of the other incarnations of the master that we've encountered in the past. Yeah, I think if you were to pick out, you know, highlights of Missy, there are just so many of them, so many great moments, like the moment where she's having a bitch off with Davros about who is the Doctor's arch enemy. And I just think it's, I thought I was your arch enemy, that kind of stuff. I think it's wonderful. There's just so many great lines in there, just in the, at the start of season nine, when she's just sitting out in the courtyard having her coffee and just, you know, every, all the unit soldiers have got their weapons trained on her. And you know that just within a couple of blinks, Missy could kill them all so easily without having to do too much. But I yeah. think that's a very complex character and the fact that we do get that redemption throughout season 10, building up to what happens at the end when confronted by John Sims' master. And as you say, it's that wonderful, the master kills himself or herself and she kills him. And I just think that's just such a, it's just such a, as you say, a Moffat thing to do, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey, who can kill the master? The only one who really can is themselves. Yeah, yeah. I think also the, the the way that even before Missy appears in the action, how she's kind of woven through some of the previous stories, you know, that, that, that you know, we supposedly have to have her to thank for, for Clara. Yes, that um, was a very clever reference, that, uh, the, the, the woman in the yeah. show. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so, so all of that, all of those little nuggets or nougat, as you would probably say in East Coast <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, these these little uh, Easter eggs for for those who are, who are paying attention. Yeah, I really I loved I loved all of that. Really uh, top notch stuff. Yeah, and you're know, very sad to see her go in the end. But of course, did you know that very recently Michelle Gomez was back in Scotland and she was about maybe 500 metres away from Dave Steele's flat in battlefield in Glasgow, just near Mount Florida. She was in, I think it's the Battlefield Rest, the pub is called, and she was oh, yeah, there uh -huh. with some friends having a wee catch-up. So that's kind of annoying, knowing that, I mean, she's, what, 20, 22-minute drive from where I am just now? Just think, yeah. oh, we could have got Missy and we could have brought her on the podcast, but that's not it. to be. That's See, that's why. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what I find amazing, I mean, I, 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 I'm not clearly as, as voracious a devourer of uh, Big Finish as you are, but I have uh, dipped into to some of the, the Missy uh, audio adventures. And, and what genuinely amazed me was that she wasn't actually there along with the rest of the <laughs> the rest of the cast. Yep. Um, but she was, she was well, dialing it in in only one sense that, you know, she was using the kind of ethernet connection. But, but, but such, uh, I mean, again, uh, it's very rare that I will laugh out loud, have a proper lol at something in an audio drama, but, but those uh, Missy adventures it, that happened repeatedly, it's just, they're, they're just great, the, yep. ones I've, the ones I've heard so far. Yeah, I mean, see, I've just heard series three in the last couple of weeks where it's Missy and the Monk all the way through, and I just think they're such a great combination. Rufus Hound as the meddling monk is just perfect casting for the part. He gets that sort of cowardice and desperation to survive, but he's also got that avarice as well and his ambitions to collect as many things as he can. And he's in it for himself through his time-traveling lark. 
And I think mm-hmm. it's the, the the first, obviously there's a story with the monk in each of the first two sets okay. and they're great. And then just to get three of them, three stories with them together, it's just wonderful. But, um, yeah. I suppose that having mentioned the Big Finish sets, we should maybe meet today's first guest. You and I are of course on the west coast of Scotland, so why don't we travel to the other side of the country, head to Edinburgh and avoid the COP26 crowds and meet Roy Gill. Roy's written scripts for the first two series of Missy and has never, ever spoken to a podcast before. So I'm delighted that my old pal of some 20 plus years has decided to break his duck and has an exclusive chat with the power of three about writing for Missy in series one and two. Hello, I'm Roy Gill and I am the writer of quite a few things for Big Finish, but also specifically two stories for Missy. The very first one, which is A Spoonful of Mayhem, and one for series two, which was called Brimstone and Terror. Roy, welcome to The Power of Three. Hello. (laughs) It's very, very bizarre, considering that how long we've been friends and you've never particularly done a podcast before. No, no, I haven't. (laughs) That's true. So you you finally tracked me down and lured me in. Yeah, well, in terms of tracking you down, that's really not been that difficult to do, considering how... No, not really, no. (laughs) No. Yeah. yeah, but no, I appreciate you letting me take your podcast virginity. It's <laughs> going to be an absolute pleasure, I can assure you. <laughs> yes, that that now now we've now we're in an X-rated podcast, so yeah, uh-huh. all, wow. all all bars are off. <laughs> <laughs> so, Roy, let's talk Missy. What's your yes. memories of the first time you saw her on TV? I just remember because the very first time you see her is at the end of the first Peter Capaldi episode, isn't it? And she's just this wonderful kind of drop out of the sky, unexpected moment. And I just remember grinning from year to year. Because I mean, I recognize Michelle Gomez because I knew her from things like Greenwing and so on. And I just thought, who is that wonderful woman? I am really intrigued and I'm loving this. And then of course you get those little appearances of her all the way through that season. And then she comes back full on in the, in the closing to parter. And I just remember completely punching the air with the revelation that she was the master because I just thought this was the most exciting take, new take on the character, really. And I still feel that. I think she's very exciting. I think I love the fact she's so unpredictable. She's so dangerous, so funny. And also, of all the masters there have been, it seems odd to say, of all the missies there have been, only been one or one missy so far, lots of masters. She's the one that you, you feel there is actually the possibility of change, which makes her a really interesting character to write for, you know, because she's the one where we saw over the course of the time she was opposite Peter Capaldi, we saw her not exactly be reformed but the possibility of change the possibility of not always being 100% evil of having these little moments of you know self-awareness and and remorse even so that just all these things combined just make her absolutely fascinating I completely agree with everything you said the fact she is completely in some ways she's the most dangerous of masters but Mm -hmm. also at the same time she's the one you probably would want to spend time with even though she'd probably kill you at the end of it but my God, you'd have a great day out. 
you would have a great day out until right up until the moment you board her and then you'd be dead but she would be the fun one and she would be the one you have that you would have the slightest possibility of living with <laughs> so probably the best option yes that must have been really quite exciting and daunting in equal measure when you're being asked to not only write a script from missy but also the very first one from big finish yes yes i mean i think it ended up being i've no idea i was looking back to see they, they were the, the the story wasn't really in, in developed from for quite a while i was i was having we look back before speaking to you and i think i started with the original outline and the storyline was back in 2017 and i think it was recorded started 2018 and then not out to 2019 i think so it really took quite a while and i think what then eventually happened was she turned up in river the month maybe the month before but i have no idea if that was planned simultaneously or whatever but it was certainly the first episode where it was missy solo in the lead in her own series so that was yeah very exciting yeah and just always a thrill to think it, the road fe feels kind of wide open when you're doing stuff particularly for new series characters because i think there's there's so many more stories to tell so yes and uh, very fresh in our memories at that point as well it's quite an impressive debut for her in her own box set i think the fact that you went with the the mary poppins element totally ran with it, the scary poppins, mm. as I referred to in Vortex, and just <laughs> absolutely went to town with that whole nanny image. And it's it's just wonderful. Just the title, everything about it is just absolutely joyous from start to finish. Yeah, I think when Matt Fitton, the script editor, came to me and said, do you want to do one of these? And of course, to which the answer was very much yes one of the possibilities he mooted at, they were thinking about several possibilities, and one of the possibilities they mooted was to do something with the Mary Poppins image, which she obviously presents really early on, both from the way she dresses, but also from that moment in Death in Heaven, Dark Water, where she comes floating down from the sky on her, on her brolly, you know, so the, the image is there right from the start. And that was the option that I immediately said, yes, I want to be the one to do that story, because I felt it was something I could do well, really. I mean, I felt that I was never in a million years going to just do a straight out Mary Poppins pastiche because, you know, Disney would sue us. <laughs> <laughs> and it was never going to be just that. So, But the whole idea it suggested the idea of her as a nanny, which was an interesting starting point because she is the master and therefore evil incarnate and therefore not the most caring person in the world. So this possibility, it just, it's, it, it immediately it immediately raised questions, which is a good way to start a story, because my immediate thought was, you know, if she was landed with a couple of kids to look after, she would grow bored of them very quickly and kill them without a moment's thought. So there needed to be a reason she wouldn't do that. And there needed to be a reason why over the course of the story, she would get to know them. And, you know, our opinions of her or them might change. So it really gave me this kind of setup. So I, I kind of thought to myself, right, okay, so why is she here? And I, I quite quickly settled on the fact, okay, she's been exiled to 1890s Britain, you know, <laughs> and she's got all these um, prohibitions on her. She can't use technology. She can't, she can't kill anyone. She can't, oh, I can't actually remember now, but she's got all these kind of, she's been, she's been caught for a crime that she's yet to commit. She's been exiled 
and she's been forced kind of out of desperation, apparently at least, to get this job looking after the kids. But it all turns out to be part of a bigger plan. And that made me think, so obviously I want to do the magic kind of element. I want to do the fantasy kind of thing. What reason, what Doctor Who-ish reason would there be for Missy to be involved in magic? And the answer to that was, well, she's trying to, she's trying to escape. It's her way round the control. You know, she's being cunning, just the same way Roger Delgado decides to conjure up a demon or whatever, you know, the, the, the master or Missy, as it is in this case, if sufficiently desperate, is really, really, really cunning. So we'll look at any kind of way possible to escape. So she's kind of using the tools or the images, I guess, of, of magic and fantasy to kind of find a way to escape from this prison she's been put in. And that gave me the setup for the story. And yeah, it was just such a lovely gift of a thing to do, really. Absolutely. Yeah, one of my favourite projects, that one, I think, actually. I think it comes across that I think there's just a real joy and relish in the, the lines. And I'd imagine that no matter however you write it, Michelle completely goes off in a different direction, despite the accents that she drops into, everything like that. <laughs> you just never quite know what sort of performance you'll get from her. And that just makes it even more dangerous and fun. Well, that is definitely the case. I mean, I think I, I had in my mind when I was writing it, the fact that her character, she wandered her, you know, she's she's different from line to line. And sometimes she's riffing off the people she's with. So quite often when she's directly opposite Peter Capaldi, she's, she's more Scottish than she is in other contexts. When I was writing, you sometimes put little guides to the actors in the line. So I would sometimes suggest when she might want to drop into a Scottish accent or a Glaswegian accent. And sometimes she took that and ran with it. And sometimes she she went in a completely different direction altogether. And that is, as you say, that's the joy of Michelle Gomez. You do not know what you're going to get. You can guarantee though that it will be funny and creative and it will serve the character and the story. So yeah, Where's very this? exciting performer. Yep. I mean, for me, just the whole bit at the end with the going round and round in the underground is just wonderful, yeah, yeah, yeah. wonderful stuff. Where yeah. did that idea come from? Yeah. Right. I'm trying to remember now. I think that I was just thinking about sort of magic things she could repurpose. And so I was thinking about ley lines and I had this idea of her waking up a ley line you know, charging it up with the power of, of the of the people on the and on the train. And so I think that idea came first and then then I kind of worked around the mechanics of it because I then if you're thinking about Victorian period, you're thinking about what's iconic then anyway, and you're already thinking about things like and you're in London anyway, you're thinking about things like London Underground, you're thinking about things like steam trains and just all these things mashed together. So I started to think about okay, so the lines being built. So maybe the, the family she's with the father has some connection to the railway and so they're still using steam trains on the underground at this point so what could go inside a steam train or maybe a steam demon you know there's a monster which is actually made out of steam and then i was like i was looking up stops on the on the underground and i was thinking so what's the historic site that could be connected to all these kind of things and the lot you, you you just kind of build the logic of it really once you've got one element you try and you and I think really the image there suddenly leapt into my head of Missy driving an underground train, which was going out of control and her just kind of going, woo, woo, pulling on the, <laughs> pulling on the, on the, I don't know what you call it, the klaxon, the horn or whatever, yep. you know, and as she went. And that was a joy. I could see that in my head. Yeah. Quite often I find when writing, if I get a flash of an image in my head, then I know I can do it. So I, once I had this image of her, it was kind of finding all the pieces that led up to that moment to yep. make it make sense. 
it's fab. I mean, I've got the image of her wearing the conductor's cap or something like that as yeah, well. Yeah. When she's in there, it's just yes, that's how yes. it struck me. And it just sort of, it'd be a very yes. missy thing to do. You must have been absolutely yes. delighted when you heard it for the first time. Yes, I very much was. I, I really loved it. I was very happy with the casting. I mean, I think there are significant guest parts given to two young actors and they're both extremely good. There's big parts for two young performers and they got Oliver Clement and Bonnie Kingston, who is uh, Alex Kingston's niece, I believe. And they were both absolutely excellent, I thought. You know, Oliver has to carry parts of it in narration as well. And I'm a fan of narration when it adds to the atmosphere of the story, when it's kind of in character. And so I was, you know, you, you need a good actor to kind of convey mood and stuff. And I thought, I thought they both did extremely well. In the guest cast as well, we got Dan Starkey. And I, I remember, I think I put in the script a wee jokey comment that the park keeper should be a bit like Tony Hancock. And he really went to town on that. And uh, I just thought the scenes of them all sparking off each other were lovely. And sound design was great. The music was really expressive and filled with energy. So yes, I was very happy with it. It's, it's not, not a recording I got a chance to go to, to see in studio, but so it was, I was waiting and waiting and waiting <laughs> to get to hear it. Mm -hmm. And when I eventually did, I was very, very happy with it. Yeah, because I remember actually messaging you to say, that's it, that's it out. Oh, I think you did, yes, uh -huh. yeah. And I was, I was so excited to hear it, yes, yeah. yeah. It got a really good reception, this this first one, Spoonful of Mayhem. So were you surprised in any way when you were asked to bring in a sequel for series two? Well, no, I wasn't because I was actually asked to do the sequel before the first box set came out. It was quite close to release, I think. Okay, so my very first notes on the storyline for series two was in January 2019, which I, I think and it came out in February 2019. So I must have been asked, right, so I must have been asked to do the sequel the month before it came out. So by then I imagine, you know, the producer you know, and the director would have heard the final version and they'd know. So obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I knew I'd been, asked, I'd been asked to do the sequel before the first box set came out because I think they must have heard the, the thing and thought it had gone well. And one of the interesting things about that was I think David Richardson's, the producer's concept was he wanted to drop back in on the lives of Oliver and Lucy a little bit later and see what happened. And I was aware that the closing narration in my first episode had actually, you know, they'd kind of said, that was the last time we saw Missy sort of thing, you know, <laughs> when it, perhaps you've never been bad enough for her to come back sort of thing. <laughs> And there was a wee little, there was a little hint about what had happened later in their lives and so on. And what I did was before it was released, we went back and we took out maybe two or three sentences from the closing narration that would have suggested what happened later in their lives. And we left the whole perhaps you never came back bit because it would have, the ending would have fallen a bit oddly without that. But I used that again, I used that as a kind of hook into the next one because it turns out that Oliver's been writing letters home to his sister because he's trapped in this dreadful boarding school and one of the clues he drops in so she can know there's something wrong as he said, makes these references to, but we never saw Missy again. And she knows they did see Missy again. So he's obviously lying and dropping her hints. So I did this kind of thing and then Missy comes along and interrupts him writing the letter and rips it off him and it becomes all, and then we're done with the narration really. So yeah. Uh, 
a long answer again. I, I wasn't surprised because I, I, I'd been asked before it came out. So I guess the good thing was that the reception was then positive because if we'd done a sequel and nobody had wanted one, it would have been bad. But I think their instincts were probably right on this occasion, at least I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> and I think, again, that image of Missy as a teacher, absolutely yes. on the money. It just so yes. fits her perfectly. Yes, yes, that was very... Um, I think the concept for that, we were looking for ideas for it, and I kind of thought, well, Oliver, in the first one, one of the reasons they've called in a, not necessarily a nanny, more a governess, I guess, to teach the kids at home is he's been expelled from a string of schools, so he needs someone to teach him at home. And I think my notion was, okay, so he's been sent away to this scary boarding school somewhere. So you start thinking about, well, Missy's obviously the head teacher, and you start to get image of her as a sort of Miss Brody type who's intensely charismatic but also incredibly dangerous because people are enthralled to her but she's not necessarily giving the best advice at all times so that was the setup for that particular story and then of course you get to bring in Dan Starkey again but in a slightly different role yes 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 so I had already written I think two Paranoster Gangs by then So I was pretty au fait with the character of Strax and I guess how I write Strax. And I'd already kind of set up in the first one this notion that sometimes sometimes have these holographic cloaks that means they could could pass as humans or whatever. So the idea kind of came that Strax was um, undercover in the school as a teacher. And I was talking to Matt about this, and I think it's quite funny because I immediately thought a Suntaran would be a PE teacher, and he immediately thought a Suntaran would be a geography teacher, and that probably says something about our respective experiences of PE and geography <laughs> at school. So I, I, I kind of had the, I, I, I did the best of both worlds, and I wrote him as a geography teacher to please Matt, and I wrote him as a PE teacher to please me. And of course, being Strax, he's, you know, fairly outrageous as both, but he's there undercover. And the joke, kind of became that because I looked, it was this weird kind of moment of synchronicity. I had given an address for the family that they lived, the place they lived in, in uh, Spoonful of Mayhem. And it turned out to be in Bloomsbury anyway. You know, it turned out to be near Paternoster Row. And I thought, well, these two kids, they hung around with Missy for however long it was, a couple of months or a couple of weeks or whatever. And they went on all these little miniature quests where they, you know, they stole things from the British Museum <laughs> and found steam demons and woke sphinxes up. That was Dan Starkey again, very funny. And so Lucy, when she's on the train to Scotland on her quest to kind of rescue her brother, she sees Strax on the train and he's sitting reading a, a sort of boy's own type adventure. She's totally she's not spooked by the fact he's an alien at all because she's met aliens. In fact, she, she's quite assertive and bossy and knows exactly who she is. She just instantly co-ops him, you know, takes over and says, right, you're going to help. You're going to be, you're going to help investigate this. It's almost a Paternoster Gang crossover episode, almost. We have Strax and at a certain point in the episode, spoilers to anyone who hasn't heard it yet, he does call on his friends in the Paternoster gang to help because they need to go dig out something from, from London. And uh, there's a le- really lovely bridge there. I think I, I put in the script, you know, perhaps we could have a hint of the Paternoster gang theme here. And of course, luckily enough, we have the same wonderful composer for both shows. So we got the, we got the Paternoster gang theme coming in. Yep. So I, I like to think there's a sort of deleted scene somewhere 
where Vastra and Jenny pull off a little heist and send what's needed up to Scotland. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're lucky you mentioned the composer there because we do have Joel Kramer mm-hmm. coming up later in the episode. So, woohoo! Ah, yes. So there we go. That was a hello, bit of serendipity. Joe Kramer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also like the fact that we know that Strax has come up to Scotland before because he comes up to Glasgow to fight. Yes, yes, he does. Yes, aha. Uh-huh. So he's all, he's all okay with that kind of thing. Yes, uh-huh. yeah. that's a lovely little aside, isn't it? In one of the Matt episodes, I think. Yes, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's. He's away uh, off in. He's away off. The doctor, he's I think, away off in Glasgow it? to fight it. Yes, uh huh. Yes, uh huh. Yeah. You're saying that from the east coast of Scotland in Edinburgh, while I am just outside Glasgow. So there we go, listeners. There's <laughs> something for you to enjoy. You can enjoy culture uh-huh. draw and violent Kenny, probably, <laughs> or perhaps not. I do have the shoulders. Except of course, I can... when I. When I was a kid, I also I lived for a while in Carcantilla, which is in the west coast. And uh, I went back to, I lived in Glasgow for a few years when I was doing my master's degree as well. So I, I kind of, I can claim a wee bit of Glasgow as well as Edinburgh. Of course, Perhaps. you may have a master's degree, <laughs> but now you've got two degrees of Missy. Ah, there's your link. There there's we go. Caption. <laughs> Did you make it down to the recording of this one? No, I didn't, unfortunately. I, again, I'm not really sure when that one was recorded. I would like to have to... I mean, I always enjoy going to studios when I can. It's just fascinating to see, to hear things at work, hear how it comes together and hear how actors and directors interpret your lines and the energy that gets added to it. And sometimes it's exactly how you have in your head and sometimes it's completely different and that's all fine because it's coming to life and it's part of the process. I do remember when I heard that one, one of the things I was particularly happy with was Alex Hope, I think, played essentially Missy's lieutenant in the boys' army she was cultivating at school. I thought he was really good. I thought that was a lovely performance because he kind of had in the first episode, Oliver had kind of gone on that journey where he'd been seduced by the darkness of Missy and then had to be rescued. So he wasn't, you know, you don't want characters that make the same mistakes twice. So this time he's more wholeheartedly against Missy and his sister is obviously has always been on to Missy. So I needed someone else to kind of fulfill that morally ambiguous role of being seduced by being a companion to <laughs> the master sort of thing. That was that particular character and I thought he did it really well. I think it's a great production again. I thoroughly enjoyed it having re-listened to it a couple of weeks ago. So yes, thank you. It's a Christmas episode as well. I don't know, it came out kind of in summer, I think. So maybe people didn't notice, but it was very deliberately kind of set because Missy's raising a winter god to try and gain all its power. And well, I'm saying winter god here because it's within Doctor Universe. It's obviously actually an alien spacecraft or something, but it kind of fitted into the world of fantasy and black magic she'd been in in the first episode. So it's kind of just in the lead up to to Christmas. So um, yeah. I had that kind of atmosphere in my head when I was writing it and I was playing sort of soundtrack albums of things like Box of Delights and that kind of spooky wintry magic to run through it. And then of course it came out in the summer, but <laughs> a wee hint, if you're re-listening to it, now is a great time of year to listen to it. So Most definitely that's my is. tip for you. Yeah. Roy, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today on No Problem. Three. It's been an absolute blast and hopefully have you back on again soon. Be happy to. Cheers, Kenny. Thank you, Roy. Thanks to Roy for joining us, which is hugely appreciated. And it's a great script, isn't it? A spoonful of mayhem, especially. It's just so much fun playing up to that Mary Poppins image. Absolutely, yep. 
okay. I, I, I love Roy's stuff actually. We do correspond on on Twitter uh-huh. occasionally, and it even felt Christmassy. So it's one that I will, you know, had a nice yeah, a nice festive feel. So I'll, I'll dig that one out again over the Christmas period. Yep, loved it. And there's another one in season two, as Roy has mentioned, which has again got that festive feel to it. So another one to look forward to. Hooray! Wonderful. So from where we're sitting now, why don't we head a little to the southwest as we're now going to head over the sea to the Republic of Ireland to meet one of the writers from the third series of Missy. You might remember Johnny Candon for his column with Toby Haydock in Doctor Who magazine where they had friendly debates, or you might know his name for being a writer of EastEnders. Either way, he's a Sebastian fella, and let's say tap of the marning to him, and he won't mind me saying that. Don't write in saying that's racist, because it's not, as Alan Partridge would say. Hello, my name is Johnny Candon, and I am the writer of Missy and the Monk, Warseed. Welcome to The Power of Three. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's uh, it's always nice to speak to a pal and have them on and chat a little bit of Doctor Who. Absolutely. So for those who don't know, could you maybe explain how you came to be involved with writing for Big Finishes? You do have a, a bit of a an all right TV CV. Oh, that sounds good. TV CV. TV CV. It's, um, well, it was really lucky, actually. It was lovely um, Lisa McMullen who I work with on EastEnders. And we, I think it was the first time I'd properly spoken to her because I'd not met Lisa before really. And we sort of nodded and smiled in meetings and stuff. But it's funny, in I've found in any TV show I've worked on, you'll always, you can't really throw a stone without hitting a Doctor Who fan somewhere, you know what I mean? And we were coming back on the train and it was into London. And we started chatting about, I think she was telling me a bit, funny enough about an episode of Doctor Who written, the, the, uh, Doctors, the TV show that's on in the week, and she was talking about how Fraser Hines had been in it, and she'd given him. There'd been lots of um, little Doctor Who nods in it, like there was, a, I think there was a an ice hockey team called the Ice Warriors and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, that's brilliant, that's really good. I had said that I really enjoyed Big Finish. She said she writes, for them, so I really like them, um, and uh, I think it's fantastic that you kind of get as close to 1980, whatever era they're doing Doctor Who, when you're listening to them, you are there. You're kind of thinking, this could have gone out between Warriors and Deep and the Awakening or whatever, you know. I think it's brilliant. I said, I'd love to write. She said, oh, well, I'll, 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 I'll pop an email off. And I was like, oh, okay. And you know, and stuff like that is, I'll have a word kind of thing. And you think, oh, well, that's not. And I thought, she'll forget, I'll forget. You know what I mean? But it's lovely to just meet her and chat Doctor Who, you know. Honestly, about four or five hours later, I got an email from Matt Fitton, who is one of the loveliest people you could ever meet, who I haven't met. But we've spoken on the phone, we've spoken over email, and there's threats of going for beers at some stage now that the pandemic seems to be receding. Yeah, he got in touch and just said, look, he pitched me some ideas, and I did. And he picked the water. It was the Warsaw one was originally it was set somewhere else and it was in a different time and all this kind of stuff. But there were, it was originally World War One in France, I think, or something like that. And he said, we're already doing something that's in World War One with Tom Baker, I think. And it was just to sort of shake it up and not have everything happen in World War One. So I changed it to 1980s New York. And um, it sort of just grew and grew and changed and changed. And there was, originally, there was, um, this is a spoiler for Warseed. Originally, um, the Warseed wasn't anything to do with Time Lords. It was an alien in its own right and stuff. But we're talking to Matt, we kind of worked out if, if it was something to do with Missy, that would work better as a story and everything. So that's how it sort of started. Yeah, it was just it was just from there. It was, it was anybody listening to this who wants to write for me finished probably gnashing their teeth, going, "Oh my god, is that easy?" It, it's it's not, but 
I think if you've written for another thing and they know that you've got you've not been fired <laughs> then it might it might be a bit easier um but it was yeah it was just really fortunate it was Lisa and Matt's kindness really on that day so that's how it started of course Matt is a huge EastEnders fan so he'd have known your name straight away which helps well I didn't realize he was a big fan of EastEnders at the time but yeah he's he's um in as much as we all sort of go, go on, what have you heard? What do you know? He'll be like that with me with these deadlifts. He'll like he'll <laughs> when we were having chats, he go, I really like what's happening with Nick at the moment. And I'd be like, Oh yeah, cool. But I couldn't tell him anything, obviously, <laughs> because I'd be it'd be trouble. But um but yeah, he, he really likes his deadlifts, so um, yeah. so that was a I think a big help, yeah. Missy, what a character to write for. Straight in there, your first script, and you've got somebody who's quite possibly, apart from the doctor, the character who's made the biggest impression in 21st century, somebody who's just larger than life and just leaps off the page and then wants to murder you. Yeah, I wouldn't argue with that at all. I think she, it's hard because you don't want to do anybody out of credit, but I think Missy is 25% the idea of Missy and who she is and what she is as a character and 75% Michelle Gomez. I was going to say if Missy ever regenerates, but of course she has. <laughs> but uh, Because in a way, I sometimes forget Missy's the master because Michelle brings so much... It's like, I suppose it's like when with the Doctor, if you bring who you are to the role and charm everybody with who you are and what you do, then you're onto a winner. And I think Michelle... I would, you know, obviously I listened to all of the Missy's that went before, so I had an idea of how the audios went and everything. And she just, and Rufus too, but she, she just, depending on how long she does, I could see it going forever because she's just, there's so much you could do with her. And even within the confines of the TV show, when she would, I mean, she was in a lot of Peter Capaldi's last series and had her own story going on. Her redemption, I thought was heartbreaking. I loved all of that. And at the end with uh, the stuff with John Sim where, it, it, I, I mean, that could be its own TV show. You know what I mean? That, that, that's, that's a little bit of an ongoing story that we all love. But you could take that out and make that about it, somebody's insanity or somebody's, you know, it's, it's, it was brilliant and sad and joy. But to watch those two sparking off each other. So I went back and watched that too uh, when I was writing. Just, you know, because it's, I wanted to get Missy's voice in my head. But, but to be honest with you, once you've seen her, you can't get her out of your head. She's absolutely, she's, absolutely, she's just there all the time. And, you know, when you're writing something, when you're inventing it yourself, like any of the other characters, I know who they are. You know, like the, the billionaire, the evil man, and his daughter, and Stasia. But there's, Missy's just there. Like when you're writing, if you're writing a line for her, you know if she would or wouldn't say that. You know what I mean? It's just, she's so fully formed. So yeah, I, 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 it's joyous. Like it's just, it's, it's a gift to write for Michelle and Rufus. But it, I'm not surprised she's got her own series. If you know what I mean? I, I think it's it's a no-brainer that she would have her own adventures and that people would want to hear them. Because I was wondering, when you're doing the script, do you put in your notes, for example, or is it does it come from Michelle as to where, when she suddenly goes into a bizarre Cockney accent or suddenly goes all American, is that in there or is that pretty much from her? I, I, I'd say 99% from her. She does her. She does Missy. Um, there's a bit, I remember writing... I think in the first scene, actually, in the TARDIS, there's there's, um, there's a bit where I uh, in I just, you know, gave a little note that she would say in the Glaswegian accents because she's threatening the monk. <laughs> Stop the Glaswegians are threatening. But it's, just <laughs> when she, it's just when she's, um, she's, she's emphasising that she's going to do something and she said, I think she says baby in a Glaswegian accent. 
but she's done that on, on TV. So I just sort of wanted to do it. I, I thought, you know, but no, I, I mean, I write the script and she gets it and she she Michelle's it. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. um, it's uh, it's up to her. And I would, I, you know, apart from that one little thing, I wouldn't even try to. You know what I mean? It's like it's like I think all the doctors and everybody they bring their own performance to it and. I'm lucky to be writing for her. She's not lucky to be getting my script. She makes it better. You know what I mean? I think so. I just go, make your magic on it, and off you go. So she's. Uh, so no, the answer is no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't sort of go. Oh, say this in the American accent or anything like that. I just. Yeah. I think she's just. She's fantastic at what she does, and she does it well. Yeah. And of course, it must have been fun writing for the monk, because you know Rufus as well. I know Rufus from because I do stand up. Not so much now because all the stand-up uh, clubs are closed. But yeah, years ago um, we would bump into each other around and about on the stand-up circuit. And yeah, he's lovely. He's very funny. And so I hadn't heard. I think it was divorced, beheaded, that I went back and listened to for him. And he's just joyous. He's very. I obviously saw him in Doctor Who, but not as the monk. But um, yeah, he's fantastic. And the thing about the monk, I suppose, it's it's such a um, because it was Peter Butterworth. And that was it. You know what I mean? Anybody who came and played him for Big Finish, there's no wrong monk. You know what I mean? So it's like, you can, it, it's like everybody's played him since as being the monk. And now Rufus is the monk. And if maybe in years to come, somebody else will be the monk. But it's just what he brings to it. It's the sort of, it's very sitcom without it. I was going to say without it being anything, but sitcoms are good. It's, it's just, it's the right side of, um, I don't know, it's the classic double act, it's kind of Steptoe and Son, or, you know, and you know, those people trapped together, literally trapped together in this case, and I think they, they're brilliant, they're brilliant, and any time he tries to get too cocky or sure of himself, she just turns up and, you know, undercuts him, and as it should be, so I think, I think he's brilliant, and it's just, hearing the two of them together just makes me grin, <laughs> it's, they're fantastic. Yeah, it's to use that old Doctor Who term that we'll all know, it's like a Holmesian double act, which is just superb. Without them being absolutely, yeah, it's yeah, it's absolutely that. Yeah, it's that sort of um, slightly. If this was the seventies, they'd be sort of. It would be Jago and Lightfoot, but baddies, you know. And um, actually, that's a good idea. It <laughs> yeah, is, but, but um, yeah, and it, and the thing about Jago and Lightfoot, though, I suppose there's an under, uh, there's an underlying, not even underlying. They're, they're very fond of each other. You know what I mean? Uh, whereas I don't know if. There's a bit in uh, War Seed where the monk's about to be killed. Well, he's about to be shot. And Missy turns up and says, if anybody's going to kill him, it's me. So I don't think she's, um, I don't think she really cares about him, but she uh, in the, she cares about him on the level that is possibly fondness from Missy's yep. point of view. She goes, oh, I, don't, I won't let anybody kill you because when it comes to the time, I'll kill you. The thing I really like about War Seed is the fact that while this story is so light and fun, there's a really, really dark core at the heart of it with what the war seed actually is. Yeah, I mean, he's, it's, um, somebody said, somebody tweeted me yesterday, said, oh, I just loved it, it made me laugh and everything, and I was going, oh, that's nice, because there's jokes in it, you know, and, um, you know, it's always lovely when somebody enjoys it. And but yeah, the war seed himself, or itself, is, um, yeah, it's very sad, very, very sad, in that, uh, and there's no real... I mean, I suppose there isn't. He has a story he's trapped in, then he's not. But I mean, he gets to go off and essentially wait. And the way I thought of it, it's like it is sort of. She says it in the in the thing. It's like having a grenade in your backpack or um, a bullet in a gun. He's just waiting to be used, and the only thing he'll be used for is to kill people. And he doesn't want to. He's sort of, you know, he's lived long enough and seen enough 
destruction and death. But he, if he wants to be Rambo up in the hills chopping wood, he doesn't want to be. Part, he doesn't want to be part of anyone. Yeah, he's 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 really he he's a tragic figure. The poor Woodies. I'd like to bring him back. I don't know what you would do. I, I've thought about him and what what he would do. But at, at the end of the day, he's more a plot device than. Um, you wouldn't have the war scene adventures. It'd just be him morose around the universe. But yeah, at the end of it, when she lets him go, and even what the description of how he how he travels and stuff, he's torn up inside, but when he arrives somewhere else, he regenerates and it's painful. Yeah, grim, very grim. <laughs> but it's, um, it's, it's that little bit of... Because the rest of it, it's a bit of a romp with... Um, you know, I'll give you this and you give me that and blah, blah, blah. It's, but it's... Um, yeah, it's very sad for him. I, I like him, and it's just, yeah, I, I sort of felt very bad for him at the end. It's it's tragic. One final question. Go on. What did you think of the finished play when you heard it all? Was it how you'd hoped it would be, or was it far better? I always, Matt emailed me and said, um, and I did, I hope he didn't take this <laughs> He didn't, I'm sure, but he emailed me. I hadn't heard it yet. He said, oh, I'm just get about to sit down. This. I went, oh, I'm really nervous, you know, because... With anything, I think if you, with anything that anyone's ever written, you you have an idea of it in your head, and even with these tenders who they've been making it for thirty odd years, um, thirty five, you send it in and they do what they do. You know what I mean? And everybody has it's a huge collaborative effort in as in, in as much as this is too. You know, the actors come in, the directors come in, everybody comes in. You can only do so much to it, and you have to let it go. So when I heard it, it blew my mind. I thought they had done it; just surpassed what I had done. You know what I mean? I I was. Because you sometimes think, well, yeah, will the actor know that this is a joke? Will they put the right emphasis on this line and all that kind of thing? But you can't be, unless you put that in the script, you can't be too precious about it. You just have to, um, you just have to trust that it's going. But it blew my mind. I thought it was absolutely. I've listened to it more than I've listened to it a couple of times, which is very indulgent. <laughs> but it's, but no, I love it. I think it's, I think it's absolutely fantastic. They did a brilliant job. It really sort of, it's and it's just, it's just long. It's very exciting to be fair. Like. When the theme kicks in and stuff like that, and you just kind of go, "Oh my God, this is you know, this is I did this, I didn't. Everybody did this, but it's you know, but it, it, but it's um, yeah. So yes, no, it was it was absolutely thrilling to be honest with you. Brilliant. Johnny, thank you so much for your time today and joining us in the podcast, oh. and hopefully we'll speak to you again very soon. I would love to. Thank you very much. So we've heard a wee bit about a story in each season, but one man who's worked across the whole range lives a little further away. Let's go west and travel across the Atlantic all the way to the far side of the United States of America and meet Joe Kramer. Joe's worked on a number of Hollywood films, including Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation and Jack Reacher, both starring Tom Cruise. But it's another Tom who Joe was particularly excited about to write about. That's Tom Baker. And of course, the other thing that Joe has really wanted to do in his career was talk to a Scottish podcast. So let's meet the man. Hi, I'm Joe Kramer, and uh, I'm excited to be on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Joe, you've done big movies. You've done Big Finish. Which gives <laughs> you the biggest thrill? Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You know, if I could go back in time and tell 12-year-old me that someday I'd be writing music for a Tom Baker story, I wouldn't have believed it. And I know that it's not necessarily a universal dream of everyone in the world to do that, perhaps in the same way as, you know, working on a Tom Cruise movie. But for me, I was a Tom Baker fan before I was ever a Tom Cruise fan. You know? And that's not to put Tom Cruise down. So everything has its value to me. And, you know, 
I lived in London for six months while I made the score to Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And I moved there, I spent six weeks there at the end of 2014 supervising some filming. And then I moved back there for five months in February of 2015. And somewhere around early July of 2015, very near the end of my stay, we were finally like, you know, we'd been writing and I'd been writing music for four months and recording it at Abbey Road with, you know, 90 piece orchestra and also working at another studio called British Grove. And I finally sort of sat down and watched like the first reel of the movie with the score and everything. And it only then did it hit me when the Lalo Schifrin music came in, like, I've scored a Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> like I actually did it. You know what I mean? Like. It's, you know, when you're working on these things, the sort of the day to day of it can, it, it becomes almost just like de facto, like, yeah, I'm doing that today. It isn't until it's sort of, for me, it isn't until it's done that I go, wait a second, you know, I did that. And so now that I've got God of Phantoms sitting on my shelf, I'm like, wait a second, you know, I worked with Tom Baker. I mean, I think about when I first saw Missy in the first episode of that season with Capaldi uh, at the end of the episode, my boyfriend, and I just thought, you know, who is she? And now, how many years later, but I've done, you know, three box sets with her plus Masterful. You know, I've never met her. We've, we've exchanged a couple of pleasantries on Twitter, which is, I think, super cool. I mean, it keeps the, it's funny how small the world is with social media, but to be even tangentially connected to that stuff really excites me. And so, you know, to circle back to your question, you know, uh, big finish, man. When I finished Jack Reacher, the first thing I tried to do is get involved in Doctor Who in some way to try to use or to use that uh, Jack Reacher break. And because Cartmel, Andrew Cartmel was a fan of Doc, was a fan of Jack Reacher, the score, and I was a fan of Doctor Who, we became pals. And, you know, he really walked me through to Nick. And then Nick at first was like, does this guy know like what we do and who we are? And, I was, and Andrew was like, yeah, believe it or not, he does. And he still wants to work with you guys. So I was like, okay. You know, Nick was like, okay. And so yeah, they're both great. And they're both great in different ways. You know, obviously I would love to be able to use a full live orchestra for a Doctor Who for a big finished production. But you know, there's films that I've scored where I wish I could use a full orchestra and instead I have to use samples and certainly the past two years with lockdowns and social distancing it's been harder than ever to get an orchestra together in the same room for a score so you must have been so excited when I'd assume it'd be David Richardson said here you go would you fancy doing Missy you're right well he didn't say quite like that but <laughs> No, yeah. In fact, I remember it was funny because I got the I got the email asking me if I wanted to work on it. And of course, the real thrill for me, or not the real thrill, but a real thrill for me, in addition to just being able to work on them, is for Missy, Jenny, and Paternoster Gang, I got to write the theme tunes. And so that, for me, is also a great thrill, is to create the theme for that character. And of course, you know, David Richardson and the director, Ken Bentley, had a brief for all of these things, something they'd like to hear, you know. Certainly, Missy as a character had a certain quality of Mary Poppins that they wanted reflected in the music in some way, combined with the sort of bombast that Murray Gold was bringing to the TV show at the time. Um, but yeah, when I got the call or when I got the email asking me if I wanted to do it, of course, I said yes right away. Then I... Um, 
this was this was at a time when Big Finish was still not necessarily um, oh quite so. Uh, what's the word? They weren't. They wouldn't have minded people tweeting about something in a sort of oblique way. Now, of course, you know, many years later, everybody tries to be much more in control of what's said on social media before something comes out. But I had sort of said, hey, Doctor Who fans, you know, have some news that might excite you. And everybody thought I was going to announce that I was going to take that I was going to take over the show from Murray, which it was like, <laughs> you know, and then. I don't know if it was a coincidence or not, because I was in England when this happened. I was at Hammersmith on a double-decker bus, pulling out a Hammersmith, I, probably to go visit Andrew, actually, in uh, where he lives, Andrew Cartmel. And not an hour later, the BBC announced that Sagan was doing the, sc the score for for taking over for Doctor Who. And I almost wondered, it's like somebody was like, wait, a, no, 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 this is going all wrong. <laughs> He's doing his thing. We meant to... We need to put this, I, you know, I, I joke because I only have about 3,000 Twitter followers, so I doubt it really <laughs> ignited anything. I remember the moment I got the invitation because I was sitting on the top floor of that double-decker bus at Hammersmith Station. So That's really cool. I'm so yeah. impressed. And it's such a wonderful theme tune as well. It's just so playful with dark undercurrents to it. Love that. You also look at the theme that there is for the War Master, which is blatantly evil i love the way that as composers you create something that reflects the character in your work which is an absolute skill well thank you the thing i love about the missy sets in particular is that she's a villain but she's the hero of our stories in in that strange way and so michelle gomez i think she walks that line so that it's a very delicate line because you sort of love her and at the same time she's doing despicable things but she's, sort of, she's so charming doing it that you're sort of won over and you go along with her on the ride. And it's been equally interesting watching her or watching, listening to her back and forth with Rufus Hound in this latest set because he's in all three stories. He did guest spots in the first two box sets and now he's in all three stories. And they sort of out charm and then out evil each other constantly. And it's such a great playful thing that they have. And so the music to me was a chance to make her, you know, it was a playful theme with an underlying current that, that no, she is still evil. Don't forget, she'll render an entire race of beings bodiless just out of, just on a whim, you know, like she does to the VAD in this new box set. Yeah, love it. So tell us maybe a wee bit about how the process works. So you'll get the raw audio files, and then mm -hmm. I'd imagine that the first thing you'll do would be to assemble a dialogue edit before you do the sound design. Correct. I mean, because there's no visual element like a film, the dialogue edit becomes the timeline by which everything else in the, in the project sort of needs to be structured. So what that means is I cut, I, if, without dialogue, I can't do the sound design if there's no dialogue. If you had a movie and they weren't done cutting the dialogue, but they had cut the picture and they had a rough working dialogue track, you could start working on the sound design and the music. But I need to get that dialogue track really locked down. Basically like a locked cut. I leave sort of the process I use allows me to open up or close any moment in the show time-wise to make it faster or slower. I can still adjust the pace almost right up to the last possible moment because of the way I keep things sort of isolated in, in Pro Tools in different tracks. But yeah, I edit the dialogue, 
and then now, and I, I say I, but I, I have, I worked with a sound designer for years named Josh. He moved on to uh, other opportunities, which, you know, more power to him. And so I started training my son, who's a Doctor Who fan, you know, and now he's, you know, out of high school and very much interested in filmmaking and music production and sound production and sound design. And so I just started training him to do a little bit here and there, and he really took to it. So I gave him more and more until now Sin and I doing it together. So we take the dialogue and we cut the scenes. And then from that, we then add like a background. You know, I, I basically apply the Hollywood film sound design template, which is that you have a, a, a set of background tracks, which are room tones, ambiences. If you're in the TARDIS, it's a TARDIS control room. If you're in an office, it might be an air conditioner. And then also maybe a little bit of quiet hubbub of voices muttering, you know, and then maybe even like computers or something like that. If you're on the bridge of a starship, might be like a rumble track and then some stuff, you know. And then we do a Foley pass, which we don't generally do Foley like a movie in terms of setting a microphone in a room and doing the motions. Although sometimes we will go that far. But I have a pretty extensive library now having done over 30 projects for Big Finish now. I have a pretty extensive library of sounds and, and, and Foley sounds that I can edit in. And so we just, we do that. And, and I have a footsteps library as well as a, a keyboard instrument that I can trigger footsteps with my MIDI keyboard. So I can play the footsteps like a musical instrument. So if I need something that's very specific, let's say there's a scene where Missy runs into a room, sort of scuffs to a stop, then jumps back a little bit. I can go, you know, you know what I mean? And, and, and play it like music. Because sometimes when you're cutting little sound files, it can be really hard to get a flow to it. And then once all that's done, I send that to the director with the dialogue and the sound design. I generally, prefer to send them the dialogue and the sound design together and not just the dialogue by itself. But I'm happy to do the dialogue by itself if they want it. And then at that point, I then write the music. And, you know, there'll be a back and forth with the director about the sound design. Generally, there's more back and forth about the sound than there is about the music. And that makes sense because the, the sound design is doing so much to paint the reality of the world that we're hearing. Whereas the music is a much more abstract kind of thing. And I think for most people, music is setting the mood, it's setting the tone, it's helping to set the pace. And it's generally um, not something that the directors have generally come back to me saying, this is totally wrong, you know, you need to change it, you know. Whereas sometimes they'll come back to me and say, you know, you have this taking place in a very echoey room and I really pictured it being a very dry room. Or there's a scene in Missy where she's using like a Hoover to suck up these bodiless spirits of the VAD. And, you know, Ken Bentley came back to me like, I really want that Hoover to sound like a massive, you know, I had sort of a sound like what Americans would call a dust buster, like a little hand fact that's <laughs> And he wanted like a proper Henry Hoover type, you know sound so you know there's a back and forth uh, but it, it all starts with the dialogue i would imagine that having created missy's theme that is also quite handy for when you're working on the score because it can give you that basic piece of music to expand upon and 
and capture the character. So you can just, you can have a more angry version, you can have a softer version for those tender moments when Missy does have them. Not often, but now and again, they do arise. Yeah, well, for example, at the end of the, again, the story with the VAD called Body and Solace, or Bodyless and Solace, she has essentially saved this, there are these two races, I guess, at war, these two factions of humanity on this planet, the VAD and the beans or the K, empty headed. Uh, anyway, she's with the leader named Gasher, and they're talking at the end of the story, and he, you know, she's basically saved his people. And there's a sentiment to that. There's a softness to that, that I really want the audience to take what's happening as sincere. That's one thing that music, especially in audio dramas, really helps do, is it helps frame how the audience should perceive the scene. Because we don't have the clues of body language and facial expression. So to make the audience understand that, no, Missy's being, she's having that, she's letting Gasher under her guard a little bit and having a sincere moment with her. I feel like the music needs to help tell the audience, no, you're right, you can trust me, this is sincere. And then when she pulls away, I bring in a little bit of mischief music or maybe even a little darkness. And, you know, I do that with all the audio drama stuff. One thing I love is that I'm not, I'm a thematic composer. So like you say, I have her theme and I can play all sorts of games with it, make it fast, make it slow, light, dark, high, low. And there's been a growing trend in film to shy away from thematic composing. Hollywood scoring has gotten more and more textural over the, over the decades that I've been working as a professional. And to the point where it's like, people just want, you know, you know, and that's scoring now. And, you know, I just, I reached a point where I just didn't, that didn't interest me anymore as a composer. It wasn't, you know, I understand that film composing, and in fact, even this to a certain degree, we're composers are hired artists. We're hired to provide music that makes the producers and the directors and the writers happy. And it's not, it, these dramas don't primarily exist as a vehicle to show what a great composer I am. My music is there to help support the story they want to tell. So I am subservient, you know, in, a, in the most artistically meaningful way to the direction that I'm given. But I'm allowed so much more latitude as a composer to write the kind of music I want to write in these audio dramas. In, for example, the first Missy story, and I've talked about this before, but there's a sequence at the beginning where she's on the roof of a, like a London, Victorian London building. And in my brain, I picture like those sort of angled roofs from the chim, chimney stuff in, in the later part of Mary Poppins, you know, when they're up on the roofs. And I picture her even kind of floating on an umbrella and this guy's sort of hanging and she's sort of, you know, up to no good. And the music, if you listen to the sequence, is very swirly and, and full of gestures of motion and indications of flight. And he's hanging by his fingers on the ledge of the building, so there's tension there. These are all kind of things that many Hollywood directors now find corny and Mickey Mousey or, you know, over the top. You know, it, it's it's too much, it's, it's too connected to the visual. They just want like a boom, or they want boom, 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 boom. You know, they just don't want scorings the kind of scoring I want to do. And with the audio drama, that's almost a vital component because it helps it helps bring these things to life so that it doesn't sound like, especially now, a guy in a broom cupboard with a tea towel over his head, you know, recording his dialogue during lockdown, you know? One final question. Before we started, 
we were chatting about your dialogue edits. You must have a hell of a lot of fun with some of the stuff you get with Michelle Gomez because <laughs> she just seems to be so full of life and vibrant with that cheeky West of Scotland Glaswegian humour. It is fun. It's fun to get a peek behind the curtain, uh, so to speak, and to sort of be a fly on the wall, as it were. You know, and I'm just doing my job. I'm certainly not in trying to invade anyone's privacy, but the actors are recording their dialogue. There's moments between takes where they're, or where they might be in the middle of a take and stumble over some dialogue and they'll laugh and do it again. And sometimes they'll rib each other. And it is fun to hear all that stuff and sort of listen behind the scenes, you know, and relate to them as people and not as sort of icons of fandom. You know, for someone like me, it's always been interesting. You know, I've grown to sort of really love, I was always an Anglophile as a Beatles fan, Monty Python fan, Doctor Who fan. You know, when Mission Impossible gave me the opportunity to come to England and then to live there for six months, I really fell in love with it. And, you know, if there was some way for me to live there, split time between LA and then the UK, I absolutely would. And it's still sort of, it's just funny to me because I grew up in a little tiny town in upstate New York. I never thought that I'd be working with these people on projects. Uh, and I know it's to some degree, it's sort of a, a goofy kids show, or maybe it's a little obscure. It, it probably isn't on everyone's radar the way Mission Impossible is, but it's very meaningful to me to be able to be part of it and to participate in the creation. I was talking with a friend of mine who writes comics for Marvel and, you know, he got assigned to do a, some Star Wars issue and it wasn't the greatest Star Wars issue in the world, but he was like, doesn't matter, man. He was sort of saying, yeah, I wish it was something else, but you know what? I'm canon, you know? And I, that's what I think is I'm canon, I, you know? I mean, to a degree, you know, they could always rewrite it later, but I get to be canon. I'm in the TARDIS Wikipedia. So, you know, what do they call it? TARDIS, uh, TARDISFANDOM.COM or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've got an entry in there which is so bizarre considering that I just write about people, you know, like yourself, <laughs> the talented ones who do all the clever magic stuff. Mm. Very bizarre, but fantastic. But no, Joe, thank you so much for your time and joining us on The Power of Three. It's been an absolute pleasure and hopefully we will chat again soon. I would love to. Thanks so much for having me. So, our thanks to Joe for joining us and sharing the secrets of how he puts these things together. So, John, of course, the big question for you now is, what's your Twitter for those who are looking to follow you? It's at Missy Misdemeanor <laughs> Bolin. No, it's, uh, it's at, just Google John Bolin, at Dr. J. McGB. That's you. Okay. And if anybody is wanting to follow me, I'm at Finished Zine, or you can find out about the other Doctor Who podcasts I do if you follow at Pieces of Eighth, which is written out in full. But of course, remember, you can follow this podcast too on Twitter. That's at Power of Three Pod with the number three rather than being written out in full. And we have our Facebook page too. So that's us done. Phew. That was uh, not too bad, John, considering how late in the evening it is for us, all because of the Great British Bake Off. Well, it's not really my place to comment, but yes, this conversation was pushed back more times than the last uh, Bond movie. <laughs> so simply yeah. serve to heighten the anticipation. Absolutely, as always. So, John, thanks very much for your time again, and always good to see you. So my I pleasure. will speak to you very soon. So goodbye to the listeners from me, Kenny. And from me, John. Bye, everyone. 
But John, before we go, I believe you may have a question for me. Yes, Kenny. Can you tell us what piece of music you've chosen to uh, play us out this week? Well, John, I'm glad you asked me that. Those of us who've watched Death in Heaven and Dark Water recently will remember that Michelle Gomez improvised a wee song for herself, so it seems only fair to play out with Hey Mickey from Tony Basil. Hey Missy, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind. Hey Missy, hey Missy. Hey Missy, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind. Hey Missy, hey Missy. Hey Missy, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind. Hey Missy.